0: Hi, it's Arlen Walker from Live from Helms Wasteland and you are listening to Roleplay Rescue
1: Jay's gonna bring me back. Give me a plus one to attack. Whoa, oh, 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 I wanna come back to the dice. Whoa, oh oh, 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 I think i need
0: a roleplay rescue
1: oh yeah i need a roleplay rescue oh yeah oh yeah hello rescuers my name is che webster and this is roleplay rescue the podcast about rediscovering our lost role playing hobby this is the first in a fresh sequence of conversations I've been having with various friends within the roleplaying community. This episode features a chat about how to move from, for want of a better word, beer and pretzel style gaming, towards something perhaps a little deeper, richer and longer lived My guest, Arlen Walker, is the host of Live from Pelham's Wasteland, which you can find both as a podcast and on YouTube in video form. Arlen does most of his most recent work on YouTube and his thoughts can range wildly, but they do include a lot of good solo play examples as well as discussions about RPG theory that I absolutely love. I'll put links to his stuff in the show notes. Big thanks up front to Arlen for coming onto the show. I hope you'll find it as interesting as I did. This is Season 12, Episode 3, Deeper Gaming with Arlen Walker. So, welcome today to Arlen Walker from Live from Pelham's Wasteland, um, a podcast that everybody should be listening to, even though he's gone on hiatus, and you should definitely check out his YouTube channel, even though I don't. Um, But Arlen, thank you for coming on today to have a little chat with us. Yeah, yeah, happy to be here we decided that we would have a bit of a natter about beer and pretzels gaming, kind of shifting that towards a more, uh, deeper game. I think it's the word that yeah. the we're using. So tell us a little it, bit about what we mean for starters. So for me, often it has to do
0: with, um, my describe as kind of the, the, I hesitate to use purpose because that makes it sound so, um, constructed and teleological that um i don't think that's necessarily the certainly for me that's not how i think about um the games that i run often is necessarily having the purpose but having a sort of um perhaps goal is better or mm-hmm. even i it's sort of a um uh uh a way that you look at the game after it has happened, maybe, is the best way for for me mm-hmm. to think about it, is the the sort of sensation after the game has concluded after you played two or three or four hours, or you know, one of my buddies talked about running eight hour sessions of I think Dark Heresy, and I was mm-hmm. you know amazed at the idea that you could do that. <laughs> but he's a really talented GM. Um, kind of how do you how do you feel after the end of it? Almost is is kind of mm-hmm. a, a core thing for me when you're talking about sort of beer and pretzels versus this kind of um deeper is one way i think also just kind of more intense is often a a way that i think about it this idea that um it's kind of similar to like the sort of um aristotelian idea about tragedy that it's this kind of intense experience that you have while at the table involved and then afterwards there's this kind of release, right? It's like mm-hmm. having like having been sick and getting gotten better or having you know exercised and being done that kind of relaxation of of tension that comes from having been in this kind of you know intense and focused space and, and environment and mentality, and then moving back into the real world and letting all that tension go. That's a a sort of core element of this um, sort of deeper and more intense type of gaming. Um, And that beer and pretzels, on the other hand, I think about often, you know, the idea that, you know, if it's a game that you could... um, not miss out on anything while drinking three or four beers that's (laughs) probably beer and pretzels right that there's there's not necessarily you know much like you might say with like watching a movie or something right that Mm -hmm. there's some movies that you don't necessarily need to be totally sober to enjoy and there's some movies that you do need to be totally sober and paying attention right or um i think one of the big discussions online now is talking about second monitor content right the idea of things that you have up I have two monitors so I often have something on the second monitor um and second monitor content is stuff that you don't necessarily need to pay that much attention to to get most of what's out of it and so like they'll make tv shows where the characters will um talk in this kind of very very artificial way that kind of recites what's happened recently in the show almost every scene so that if you're not paying very much attention you can still totally follow along with the story if you're watching it directly it becomes very very strange and and very um it it feels kind of weirdly Um, pandering and and almost childish like don't the writers understand that I can keep track of what's happening but if you have it on your second monitor because you're doing something else then it's like oh I know what's going on even though I haven't paid very much attention to what's happening and I think about I think that's um, to me part of how beer and pretzels goes which is not to say that beer and pretzels is less rewarding um, because I think it can be really rewarding um, and especially as a great way to you know hang out with with your friends or with your family or whoever you game with um in the same way that second monitor content is valuable because I often have something up it's just a, a real different sort of um experience right mm.
1: yeah I guess this all speaks to our goals really you know in gaming yeah and, um, I, I mean, for me like the the more sort of beer and pretzily stuff is often a completely different set of kind of engagements that are going on um so it might be a little bit more sort of uh, focused on like overcoming simple-ish challenges, um, pretty straightforward kind of sequence of events. It might even be a reasonably linear kind of, um, you know, mo- you know, module kind of approach or something like that going on when I'm involved in those kind of games. And that can be a lot of fun. now and rolling dice and perhaps it might have minis on the table, that kind of tactile element going on. Or if we're playing on a VTT, you know, maybe you know, there's tokens on the screen kind of stuff going on as opposed to um, perhaps what I would describe, I hate to use this word, but the bit cerebral thought, you know, much more sort of theater of the mind, much more uh, concerned about the quality of, um, you know, the immersion to character, um, perhaps into uh, sort of what's na- narratively happening and all those kinds of things. So different engagements really, I suppose, um, you know, that we're, we're sort of pushing on. I would guess more engagements, like the more intense the game's going to be, the more, in, of the eight kind of MDA theory engagements, I'm, th- I'm thinking about more and more of those perhaps being plugged into what's what's happening at the table.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think often kind of another um, sort of guideline for me has to do with the idea of. Um, especially uh, in a physical space, it can be really easy to see this of um, how much is everyone at the table focused on like the one thing that's happening on the table mm-hmm. versus how much is their side chatter, people standing up mm-hmm. to go get drinks or snacks, all that sort of stuff And that beer and pretzels um, often people are still, you know, having fun and talking, but that there's a lot more of this um, kind of uh, dispersed attention, right? Right. That, you know, you might have three different conversations going around at the one game table where only one of them is really kind of, here's what's specifically happening in the RPG that we're all sort of playing. And the others are maybe related to the RPG or maybe not, but they're, you know, Kind of additional uh, with uh, online stuff that can be really hard to do because there Mm -hmm. isn't a good way to have side conversations, Um, which I think sort of leans into in some ways the kind of things that I like, that I tend to like games that have that kind of um intense focus. Although obviously when you're um sitting at your computer, I think most of us have sort of been trained to be doing too many things at once and not paying enough attention to any of them. And so you end up maybe not with side conversations, but with other things on the second monitor or reading through rule books or all of the, the other things that you might do um, but that are not necessarily as visible. I think it's I think it's most visible in person when you're, you know, sitting around the table and um you know the the kind of intense focus everybody's looking at like the the center of the board or or everybody is kind of you know waiting for the character who's speaking to speak that sort of thing versus the kind of you know, wow, oh, we're just hanging out and having fun and and there is also a game kind of happening that is kind of a, a sort of core of the structure but not necessarily defining the whole structure.
1: Mm. So why on earth would we want to have this level of intensity? I mean, you know, you said there's nothing wrong with beer and pretzels, you know, I'm kind of with you on that. But um, what is it that we're we're seeking here then if we're like like wanting that little bit more um uh what's the word intense engagement? I don't know.
0: Yeah. So I think I think there's a number of things <laughs> that make it valuable. Um I mean, I think at the most basic level, it's kind of similar to a lot of other um, media, a lot of other ways that you might engage with stories in general that, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with. Any of these different, you know, kind of like the idea of, of second monitor content, right? TV shows that you don't have to pay very much attention to. Or um, in my case, uh, I'm a big fan of the sitcom community, at least the first three seasons. Um, and I've watched those episodes, you know, probably not hundreds of times, but a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Um which means that when I watch them again, there's not really a, right, I know all the jokes and I know kind of what's going to happen and all that sort of stuff. And it's fun, but it's a sort of comforting and familiar and it's something that I already know that I really like, um, doesn't, you know, challenge my uh, assumptions about the world or anything like that. And then there's other, you know, other things that you might watch that might do those things that might challenge your assumptions about the world that might... um you know, really uh, intellectually or cerebrally kind of force you to come to terms with something um, might challenge your kind of ethical assumptions, right? Mm-hmm. All sorts of different um, things that kind of go from just, you know, this is something that is, you know, entertaining and I'm not doing anything else up to the kind of idea um, I think I think there's a tendency to interpret a lot of um, that kind of more intense or or kind of greater as a general term um, material having this kind of didactic quality. The idea that um, well, you know, you 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 know, you read your Horace so that that way you know what Horace is getting on about. Um, I personally kind of push back against that in a lot of ways. Um, For me, there's a a kind of an inherent value that has to do with, you know, experiencing great works of art, reading great works of literature, all this stuff. And um, this is really sort of tied to um, so Immanuel Kant wrote three big critique books, um, the critique of pure reason and the critique of practical reason and the critique of judgment. Um, they're three very, very dense philosophical works um, that are worth checking out if you haven't, but be prepared for just how dense they're going to be. Um, but the the critique of pure reason is the one that gets, I think, talked about the most. And that um, at the core, one of the big things in pure reason has to do with the idea that we don't experience anything directly we kind of experience our sensory version of it Um, and practical reason has a lot of other stuff too but critique of judgment has this really fascinating argument that has to do with essentially the um, foundations of logic and rational experience and the idea is that it is a tautology for a logical system to attempt to justify itself logically right that you have this logical system but you can't use it. You can only use right? What logic does is says, well, if we know that A is true, then we know that therefore B is true. But how do we get to knowing that A is true is the sort of core problem that um, a lot of philosophy has wrestled with, of course. Um, and the solution in Critique of Judgment is that there is this um, concept described as the universal subjective, this, this thing that everyone can experience that depends upon a subject um rather than being objective and that it is not dependent on a subject but it is universal so that anyone who has this subjective ability can experience it so it's it's um closer to the way that a lot of people on the internet use objective when they're talking about discussions um and this is uh considered to be beauty that the idea that being in the presence of and recognizing and experiencing beauty is a um, essentially is the foundation of rational, higher order human experience is Mm -hmm. the sort of core argument of that book. Of course, the book is like six or 800 pages long in print. So there's a lot of other stuff in it too, but that's kind of at the, you know, at the, at the most basic level, that's sort of what that whole book is about. And it's, it's fascinating and wonderful. Um, And I don't necessarily know that I um, agree with, the entirety of the argument but there is a part of me that is so kind of fascinated by it and taken by it that whether or not i necessarily agree with all of it i think it's at least a great place to start and you know worst case scenario spending your time with um beautiful books and beautiful movies and beautiful paintings and beautiful rpg sessions probably not bad for you at the very least right
1: Mm. As we started to talk about this, I was reminded of um, the bit of an old psychology text, actually. But uh, Sarah Lynn Bowman, I think it is, wrote a book uh, about sort of the function. I think it's called The Function of Role Playing Games or something like that. And there are a couple of really strong things uh, about that. She's so talking about the idea that, you know, obviously getting into a role and playing a different character offers us psychologically a kind of a, a way of exploring our own psyche, our own character. You know, we can take on different roles and then we can like experiment with them in a safe space. But one of the things that you're just what we've been talking about is of evoked in me is the memory of her talking about the ritual aspect of role playing games and how that we come together and there are, you know, there's various ritual elements that kind of start the sessions and kind of weave their way through a session. And I've always felt that the, if if there's one approach to gaming that really is disruptive to that, that is that very casual beer and pretzel thing where people are wandering in and out and, you know, the side chatter that you talked about earlier and everything else. And I guess for me, I really do appreciate there's a real beauty to the sort of ritualistic elements that kind of come through in our in the way we run our games. Um and um, I don't know, it, it's like you said about beauty. There is there is genuinely um, this kind of uh, subjectively experienced, but hopefully shared sense of that in many very deep role-playing game sessions. You know, um, not so much when I'm doing a kind of mega dungeon DD bash with uh, BX or something, but certainly if we allow ourselves and uh, to sort of try something a little bit more, um, perhaps a little bit more sophisticated I don't know Um, but I think actually the, the real key is it sort of builds over time so that it is the repetition and it is the element of ritual and it is this sort of growing sense of the aesthetic that kind of comes through over time Um which of course is the biggest challenge of all the game and getting the same group of people together for a long period of time and kind of coming back to the same game is probably the hardest thing.
0: Definitely well and I think there's something there's a, a kind of one of the things that I um, have sort of uh, recognized for myself is there's a, there's a way in which um, the, for lack of a better term, the nature of uh, a story changes as the telling grows. And I right. think for me, this often has to do with a um, comparison of uh, kind of, uh, flexibility or, um, backstory or the, the concrete developments, we might say that, you know, at the very beginning of the story, right. That the blank page has nothing concrete. Mm -hmm. Um, and then in role-playing terms after the first session for the second session, there is now concrete stuff that presumably we agree has happened in the world and is, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of details to anchor onto, um, With the second session, your sort of amount of concrete detail compared to your amount of sort of new creative material is different than once you get to the 10th session or the 100th session, right? Mm -hmm. By 100 sessions, you've got a ton of history that has been laid down within this world and presumably with this group, although not necessarily with the same group, Mm -hmm. um, that has become sort of part of the texture of that um, sort of total experience right Um, and obviously as you play you know there may be you know uh, side characters that get forgotten about Mm -hmm. or um, if thinking about as a GM kind of ideas of like hooks that got put especially early on that didn't Mm -hmm. turn out to do very much at all um that you know maybe there were you know hey there's sort of like a couple of quests that you suggested to the players um and they sort of did two of them but the other two they didn't really take up on and maybe that becomes a part of the world now because maybe the quest didn't get solved right maybe maybe there was a you know hey the merchant caravan needs guards um and The party said, we don't want to do that. And so the trade routes are stagnating. And so there's consequences for not doing that. Um, But maybe there's not, maybe, maybe that's just, you know, the trade caravan got other guards because there, are you know, enough sort of random adventures in the world. And there isn't really much that came out of that. Um, But I think that um, is really definitive of the way that campaigns grow over time um, and not just RPG campaigns. I mean, I think the a similar thing happens with, like, these kind of epic fantasy series, right, that mm. um, in, like, the first book of a, a long fantasy series or the first episode of Game of Thrones or something like that, you have this kind of world that feels very, very... Um, not necessarily chaotic, but kind of kind of flexible and undefined, right? There's, there's mm. so much potential of what could happen. And as things start to happen in the story, that potential starts to kind of narrow down and we start to get the sense of, well, you know, there are sort of other c- crazy things that could happen, but for the most part, we kind of have some sense of, well, you know, this character who we've met before, if they're going to behave as they have behaved before, they're probably going to behave in this way. And we have a sense of the kind of, uh stagnation of things is kind of a, a mm. negative way to put it um i think the other way is that the sort of concreteness of things right that experiencing that world suddenly has this um concrete element and and a predictable element um that is really uh a, i think a core thing that a lot of people get out of rpgs has to do with that um that world experience, right? Once the world becomes that kind of concrete place that feels like it's a a real world or even not necessarily feels like it's a real world, but feels like it's a world. If that makes sense that, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe it doesn't make sense that the orcs are able to grow enough food to support themselves in the dungeon, but we like killing orcs, So that's fun. And this is just how this world works. That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a real core element, but it also, I think, is a, um, I think it can be an interesting, a really interesting dilemma, um, that we see perhaps less so in RPGs as in kind of other forms of fiction. Um, I think about, for instance, like with, uh, comic book storytelling, right? Many of these comic book characters, the famous ones at least have lasted for a long time. Um, and at the same time, there's this way that often the sort of stories that are the most popular get retold, maybe mm-hmm. not in the comic books themselves, although sometimes they do, you know, like the the various rebooted universes and things like that, that they do like the same stories again, but mm-hmm. also with, you know, films or with video games or with all of these other different, um, you know, how many times have we seen Batman go up against the Joker, always a little bit different and that's kind of a really interesting thing um, that I think sort of speaks to in some ways a limitation of RPGs which is that when we are playing our kind of one campaign 100 sessions in um, we're probably not doing any editing and we don't really have a necessarily good way to kind of go back and say, okay, this thing that we sort of all agreed in the moment that was like this, it's actually going to be like this now, right? There's there's a really good way to to do that, at least that I've found. Um, and that what that means is that it's a little bit like those original comic runs where often um, – you know the the sort of events that get summarized in a three hour movie took like a year's worth of comics or more, and that's a, a very different experience. And I, I think that speaks in some ways to um, also what a lot of people who really like RPGs like is that they like that kind of. Um, hesitate to say you know you could describe it in terms of kind of soap opera right that that there's always a new episode when you turn on the tv or or like a lot of tv shows um or of like medieval romance this idea that there's just this kind of story that continues right and when you reach the end of one character's story there's another character to keep going and i think that's a, i think all of that really contributes to ways to think about the kind of rpg story in general that sort of get into thinking about um like how to get at this deeper stuff right because mm-hmm. if part of the deeper stuff is this kind of sense of the the concrete world and the legacy i think that's a big thing that players um and game masters both kind of can really gravitate towards is this idea that um you know, events that happened 10, 20, 30 sessions ago have left their mark upon the world and the players and these things. And that that is a a experience that is sort of tied to our sort of assumptions about um, permeability and impermeability and and kind of the nature of um, grand adventures almost. (laughs) Um, That what that, kind of ends up doing is to say, you know, if you are the game master or if you're the player, here's ways to sort of think about the total experience of the game. Um, How important is it that there is this kind of sense of legacy? Because the sense of legacy um, can be restricting just as much as it is empowering, right? That's a, a common theme that we see in lots of other Um, media this idea you know the the child who doesn't necessarily want to grow up to do what their parents did i mean that's sort of where a lot of adventures start out is that they you know maybe their parents were farmers or blacksmiths or whatever but that they don't want to do that they want to be an adventurer um and then at the same time you have this kind of um i think about uh there's a uh an old animated series uh batman beyond that is um, a, a Terry McGuinness is the name of the main character who ends up taking on the mantle of the Batman years, 20 or 30 years after the original Bruce Wayne Batman has retired as Batman. Um, and one of the coolest things that they do in that show is that there's a lot of these characters from the universe or or things from the sort of Batman universe that have evolved in that time. So there's a there's, Joker is not around anymore. For the most part, there's I mean, one of the movies is the return of Joker. So that is part of what happens. Um, but there's a Joker gang, right? There's this gang that has sort of been inspired by the stories of this character. Um, and they wear the makeup and all that sort of stuff, even though that character is gone. And then there's, um, you know, Mr. Freeze has been in cryogenic sleep for a long time. And then in one episode, he's, he wakes up again and is this character who kind of like Bruce Wayne has sort of been out of the world for a long time. But of course has the, the element of having been a villain for a lot of his history and all that sort of stuff. And it it becomes this really fascinating thing if you are familiar with all of this batman stuff that if you're really into that kind of that kind of world and the lore and all these characters that you have this sense of the you know the legacy and and the way that the world has developed that can be really
1: interesting so talking about like building this sort of sense of longevity into a gaming but i mean my observation is that most people seem to be hopping around trying out different i mean there's nothing wrong with this right but hopping around trying different games running a one shot running a short little campaign or something you know um and that's all well and good and fine but aren't we are, are we as a culture becoming kind of so much more like we talked about second screen content you know like our attention span is so short are we ever going to have these kind of deep, rich, long running, I mean, 100 session campaigns, seriously? I think there are a number of things that can help
0: with that. Um, I think one of the big things is to approach the nature of the campaign a little bit differently um, I think about, for instance, Jason Hobbs and his Kalmata games. Kalmata has gone on for a long time. Now, I don't know how, what the the most number of sessions that any given player has played in it, but I suspect probably less than a third of the total sessions that Kalmada has been run. Hmm. Um which creates a kind of interesting dynamic because Hobbes, uh, when he has the opportunity, will uh stream or record and then upload his Kalmata games. Um, and there is a, a group of people, the the lore masters on his Discord who are really into this world of Kalmata, not just in the sessions, the sections and sessions that their characters have played, but in general. And and Hobbes says that, you know, anything that is recorded by the players or happens in the session. That's part of what your characters can know just from rumors or whatever mm. else in Cindenor. Um I think that can be one way, of course, to create a lot of this um, sense of, of the sort of the legacy, the lived in world, all of mm. that sort of stuff. Um, I think also it gets into the idea that we, um, we don't necessarily need all of the things that we think we do in a story to understand a story. And what I mean is that especially a um, a story that kind of is, is really heavily tied to like the genre expectations of that genre, we don't necessarily need everything that is associated with that genre or everything that we might think we would otherwise need to explain in order to have that sense of um legacy or longevity um the example that comes to mind is there's a um a book series that i read in high school that i did not know when i picked up the the omnibus collection from the half price books that it was set in the Warhammer universe, um, but it actually is set in the old world and it's about the vampire counts. Um, and in the first book, one of the things that I thought was awesome is that the first half or so of the book, um, takes place at one time period and then there's a, a jump of like 40 years mm-hmm. in basically the middle of the book. Um, and when we come back basically all of the events that happened in the first part of the book have just been continuing and the vampire accounts have been taking more and more territory and pushing further and further. Um, And we have this character that we start with in that section who was a child when these earlier events happened um, and can remember kind of the, the first horrible winter where the zombies came out of, of uh, Sylvania. And then, it has just continued and continued and continued. And we kind of understand what all of that means without necessarily having to sit through, you know, a thousand pages of here's the 40 years of vampire attacks on the border areas that push Mm -hmm. further and further. Um, It creates this really fascinating sense of, and then of course, part of what's cool um, to switch gears for a second is that because it's a story about vampires, all the vampire characters are still around and they haven't really changed at all. Right. That Vlad von Karstein and Isabella and all of the, there's a sort of the protagonist of the first section who was a witch hunter that got turned into a vampire now and is sort of given into his baser impulses. Um He's sort of moved up the ranks a little bit, but he's still basically the same character because he's a vampire. They don't age. They, they don't, hmm. they, as long as they can keep drinking blood, they're going to be pretty consistent. And so it, I think adds this really interesting sense that um, all this sort of stuff has happened in the world, but we kind of know enough of the broad details to put everything together for the most part without necessarily needing to go through all of the, you know, here's exactly what happened every time. The way that, like, you know, if we were really concerned with, like, the history of the real world, we might want to know all those details, right? We might not want to summarize 40 years as just while well, the vampires pushed further in. Um, but that in this kind of fantasy world where we, we kind of understand what the dark is going to be, right? The vampires show up. They're going to push in. And then eventually humans are going to have to fight back and figure out how to stop the vampires. That We don't necessarily – we can, can summarize a whole lot of that without necessarily losing very much of our ability to kind of keep up with the story and i thought that was really interesting when i first read it as a kid because i was like oh man because i because i read a lot of fantasy books and a lot of them would you know spend a whole lot of time on all the things that uh you know if you wanted to i feel like you could totally summarize
1: Um, Mm. it's kind of making me wonder a bit about like you know role-playing setting books that this the sort of Accumulation of those, you know. I mean, I mm-hmm. think back you know, through my uh, early years in gaming. When I got involved with uh, science, History, universe, uh, a Traveller science fiction universe, there's Clarentha, you know, and then as the Forgotten Realms got created by D D, that's another one. Dragonlance universe is another one that really stands out in my mind. um This idea that they started out as like individual people's campaigns, right, and mm-hmm. then you know, they kind of grown, they they were playing, and then some stuff got written down and was shared as a product. And then over time, those products accumulate. And I kind of wonder, again, whether this is one of the ways in which we can tap into that sense of longevity by drawing on that material. So, you know, for me, the real appeal of some of these settings is simply there's just so much, you know, and there's so much time and expand scope, you know, so many deep characters and other things that you could draw on. Um, and on one level that's entirely intimidating but on another level that is like the appeal is there's this rich world and when you think about it you know we could all create that it is a it is a process of like accumulation right um and and maybe that's that is you know at heart one of the big draws to role-playing games that we can contribute at the table to like the development of that but at the same time we can enjoy like the other bits that come from you know, either with the publisher or from other players or from another group that's playing in the same world
0: yeah and i think there's a lot of you know one of my buddies on discord talks about back in um, third and 3.5 days he played a whole bunch in the living Greyhawk material really? and has a ton of that and that it was really interesting to see kind of the sort of like the meta plot of the setting mm-hmm. as it developed and going across different tables and not always playing the same character necessarily, but mm-hmm. a lot of kind of, I don't remember what they call it, but the adventures league style play yeah. of, you know, mm-hmm. show up at the the uh, friendly local gaming store and play for a little while with uh, maybe randos, maybe your friends who knows. Um, but that was a really interesting thing. And I think also it, there's an interesting way that this also gets at the way that settings, um, kind of not necessarily again i I hesitate to use the word stagnate because i think that comes across as so judgmental but that they um become a lot less flexible that i think about um for instance so the spell tensors floating disc right tensor was ernie gygax's wizard character Mm -hmm. um and the idea that that got just sort of come up with as like oh well we need mm-hmm. a spell to do this sort of thing we'll sort of put it in the world as this character's invention yeah. um and then you look at like you know modern day dnd right the the five ebooks may have you know a, a footnote about the possibility that characters could design their own spells but i would be surprised if there's anybody who plays regularly with the ideas of Magical characters making their own spells. And to be fair, there are a whole lot more spells in the game now. So you don't necessarily need to create a new spell, you can probably just find the one in the the core book or in one of the other books that will fit for you. But I think that is uh, sort of another element that has to do with this sort of longevity thing that, you know, back when there wasn't a huge spell list back when there wasn't kind of as much necessarily worked out that it might be a lot easier for a player to just say, well, you know, can I just, can I just create a new spell that does this thing? And the GM say, yeah, we'll figure it out. And then it turns into published material and suddenly has become a sort of concrete part of the world Mm. now. And that's kind Mm. of a, it's really not, I think a bad thing because I think a lot of people, are you know really into that right? Want to play a Greyhawk that includes all of the material that Gary Gygax came up with, um, but it is kind of an interesting difference from the way that games had to be played back when there wasn't nearly as much of that accumulated material.
1: Mm. It's an interesting thing about the the potential in the early days of not just like a, a world or a setting, but also the rules. So I, I you're yeah, right. Thinking back, like all of those early games that I love so much, they all include these kinds of elements about like creating spells or you know adding um, other stuff to the to the setting as well. Like there's a active encourage encouragement within the rule books, if you like, and within the way in which they published games were, which is sort of yeah over. 40, 50 years become, I guess, on one level less, less necessary, but also, you know, certainly not as actively involved because, yeah, the, the games themselves have matured. The worlds that we've you've created have matured. And so, yeah, like you said, there's an element of um, it's becoming more rigid and fixed. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fascinating. But, of course, if you are a, a GM who's wanting to create your own world and setting um one of the things that you can do is is loosen all of those bounds you know you can mm-hmm. you can just shake a loose all of the spells uh you know and, and say to yeah. yourself well what do i really want in my in my world and what actually will be possible and you can offer your players that opportunity to go create or add to or ask for uh the things that they would like to see just kind of a, an interesting idea
0: well there's a there's a sort of interesting version of that in um in the the burning wheel gold core book there's a thing that talks about um magic in the setting versus magic among the player characters and one of the the sort of basic concept is if you say that there aren't any more wizards in the setting what if, or that there's one wizard in the setting? What if the player character wants to play the last wizard? Mm-hmm. And what the book basically says is that's fine, and in fact, that's awesome. Isn't that such a fun place to play with and to have so much? And and sort of goes into the ethos of of Burning Wheel having to do with having, you know, characters making like ethical decisions and, and coming up against their beliefs that isn't it great to have this character that has this kind of unique position in the world, who therefore has all of these unique um, considerations that they may have to make that other people in this world don't necessarily have to kind of at the opposite end of the sort of, I think about, um, the way that it seems like some OSR people play of like, you know, you roll 3d6 and you've got your fighter and until they get to, you know, second or third level, you might as well just, you know, give them a number instead of a name because they may not make it that far. Um, which is totally fine too, right? There's, there's plenty of fun with that, but I think it gets into the idea of the, the kind of, um, flexibility of the world in some ways right this idea Mm -hmm. that you have this world that there's only one wizard left why couldn't it be the player character who suddenly has all of this kind of responsibility and and things to deal with that are um going to create for interesting gameplay that it doesn't have to be this kind of you know uh specially treasured reward or something like Mm -hmm. um and of course, if you're in that situation, you probably have a whole lot of this um, things that need to be kind of created and, and worked out and the all of the kind of um, uncertain things that the the wizard can't learn from anybody else because there aren't any other wizards. And so you have to figure out kind of probably on the fly how all these things work and isn't that kind of a uh, an interesting thing too this is sort of what that section gets at and i think it's a really interesting um ethos that is put forward at a lot of places in the burning wheel book but specifically i remember that kind of i don't know page or so as being sort of a a remarkable shift from i think the way that a lot of rpgs would approach that concept
1: Mm -hmm. I guess to wrap it up, I, I mean, I'm just reflecting on this sort of uh, the the difficulty I have with generic, you know, like as in the very typical sort of Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. uh, fantasy world. <laughs> um, I was having a laugh today because I'm I'm looking through uh, Basic Role Playing's Magic World, which for mm-hmm. me as a title for a book is just like the most wonderfully and terribly generic <laughs> concept. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, But actually, you know, dig into that, and it's kind of if that's the kind of if that's a game you want to play, you you know, you want to like just kind of have some characters and go do stuff in a pretty typical fantasy game. Please go go at it. I enjoy that sort of stuff, you know, really do. But I have to also say that you know, I think for me, there's a hunger for that which isn't generic, which actually is um, us as as players sitting together and trying to figure out how can we make this actually different, unique more beautiful um you know less kind of cookie cutter
0: yeah so i i don't necessarily have a an easy answer for that um but i do think i remember um i think it was on reddit there was a a sort of exercise proposed that i thought was really interesting that was take a um like a, a gazetteer chunk of text from an rpg book and then compare it to um a a piece of sort of travelogue literature, right? A, mm-hmm. a something, one of which that is designed for sort of ease of use at the table versus one of which that is really designed to impart a particular author's kind of sense of of place and, and setting and, and the mm-hmm. difference from where they came from and all that sort of stuff. And making the point essentially that um, the way that we present material has a lot to do with with the way that it uh feels at the table all that sort of Mm. stuff and and also that the way that the books present material may not be the best way to present it at the table which is Mm. a, a classic um and that ultimately you know if what you want is this kind of uh feel of flavorful, unique world that maybe what you need is less of, you know, well, here's the city. It has this many people in it. Here's some of the important places in it, that sort of thing. And much more of the way that a travelogue writer might write. So, you know, stepped out of my hotel and there's this kind of, you know, very strange smell in the air and it has to do with a particular spice that is you know used here by this particular culture a lot because it grows here and has for a long time and so that's what they spice a lot of their food with Mm. and so that's this kind of you know really immediate sensory response to being in this place that is different than Mm. being in these other places um nice and i think that's a, a kind of a great way to start is this sense of um you know, RPGs talk a lot about sensory detail often in GM sections and the value of sensory detail. Um, I think despite the fact that they talk a whole bunch about it, they almost don't talk enough about it, especially about the way that um, senses beyond vision and hearing can be so striking. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in, I, I don't remember if I did an episode on this or not, maybe I just planned to, but about how um, smell was maybe the best sense to use for horror games because when you smell something you're breathing it in yeah. and therefore you have this kind of sense that it's it's already gotten to me by the time you can smell it that you know maybe is not as important with like a slasher movie but if you're talking about like uh, Lovecraftian fungi or things like that that's such a great way to start is that you can smell something strange in the air and it has this kind of weird moldy scent and that that's such a you know because the player already knows that they breathed in whatever it is in order to smell it as opposed to just you know oh you see you see some weird looking mold on the floor right that 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 mm-hmm. has a similar kind of um you know warning about what might be out there but not that kind of visceral response right mm-hmm. and that that is i think so much of what we when we're talking about these deeper and more intense games that what we want is that kind of you know ways not necessarily to to hesitate to say trigger the visceral response, but to sort of tap into that, that we all we all have had visceral responses to things, you know, watch a, a video on YouTube of somebody getting uh, kicked in the chest and be like, oh, or, yeah, you know, yeah. look down from the top of a roller coaster and feel like eh, things are weird. All the All the different things that we may have all had kind of responses to. And of course, horror is kind of a classic one, but that, you know, when you... Are playing these kind of deeper and more intense games. I think that's often a, a sort of core element is figuring out how to tap into those responses that maybe we didn't even always maybe we're not as aware that we had them sometimes. Um, in the same way that I think um great great film and great books can do too. You know, I remember. It was a couple of years ago watching apocalypse now um and the the specific kind of ride of the valkyrie scene with the helicopters coming in and i had seen it before um but i think the first time i watched it was on my laptop in college and watching it over at my parents house with like the the speakers and the big tv and all that sort of stuff was kind of somehow kind of fascinating and 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 felt very, very uh, different in that the, the whole movie kind of had this different character because of um, in particular, just like having it louder and bigger and not pausing it, watching it the whole way through was kind of different than sitting on the laptop and watching 30 minutes at a time in between classes or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, I think something that is is very similar to what kind of great RPG sessions get at often is this, this kind of, um, maybe even, I think often for me, it's it's sort of difficult to say precisely what it is about the thing that is so striking. Um, but it is possible to say that it is striking. Um, much like a, like a great line of poetry that you would have to, you know, sit for hours and talk about, well, this is why, you know, this bit of alliteration and this, you know, particular use of the beat and then it gets twisted a little bit here. Um, But that when you kind of first read it, there's that sort of, you know, the the light bulb come on moment where, oh man, this is something special. and That is very much what RPGs
1: at their best get at. Alan walker thanks so very much for coming and have a chat today we've got to go play a game yeah yeah we do (laughs) but it's been great to talk to you and yeah definitely catch you in a while thanks man awesome yeah Thank you once again to Arlen live from pelan's Wasteland for coming and sharing his thoughts. I'll stick the link to his podcast and YouTube channel in the show notes. Please do go and check them out. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. Call in via speakpipe.com slash roleplay rescue and leave a message. Thanks once again to all the RolePlay Rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com slash RPG Rescue. And thank you also to John from Taylor Manticore for the Roleplay Rescue theme music. Most of all, thank you to you for showing up and listening. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. See you again next time. Game on.